Welcome to the second season of Science Actually, a podcast by Imperial College London students and staff. We're delighted to have you back for a new exciting topic, the science of the future. Tag along as we ask Imperial's experts to give us a glimpse of what's ahead of us. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Science Actually podcast. My name is Josh, and I'm a senior teaching fellow in quantitative life sciences. For season two of the podcast, we are recording a two-episode series on biases in artificial intelligence. We can see the positive influence AI has had on our lives, from the scrolling of personalised social media content to Nike's AI system that records data from the design-your-own-trainer or sneaker function that aids the design and marketing of future collections. Successful application in healthcare has been seen in developments of AI to support emergency departments to analyze CT scans in patients with head injuries and even the diagnosis of neurological conditions such as ADHD. However, there are concerns of biases in the data that train these AIs and their subsequent implementation thereforth. For example, ADHD is under or misdiagnosed in women and minority ethnic. In this first installment, we will explore the background of biases in AI with our two guests. Dr. Kuan Hon is a qualified English solicitor and New York attorney and lectures in the Department of Computing on data protection laws and related legal issues. Dr. Viral Thakura is a general practitioner, a clinical lead for the Digital First programme in the Northwest London Integrated Care System, and leads the Patients, Communities and Healthcare GP course in the Faculty of Medicine. This episode is fundamentally exploring how Imperial's experts are delving into biases in artificial intelligence to answer the question, how do they impact legal, clinical and educational practices? Dr. Hon and Dr. Thakura, thank you for joining us today. We are very excited to be bringing this fascinating topic to our listeners and would love for you both to start off introducing biases in artificial intelligence. Thanks very much. Well, there's lots of examples in real life of bias when AI is used to categorise people or make predictions about them. As you know, correlation is not causation, but machine learning tends to put a lot of weight on correlation based on historic data used to train the AI, and often the AI correlates the wrong things. So just to give a healthcare example of AI getting it wrong, this isn't a bias issue, but just to illustrate this correlation point, uh, there has been research on using machine learning to diagnose COVID using chest radiographs and CT scans. And because people who were more ill were lying down when the scans were taken and people in better health were standing up, the AI learned to predict that if you're lying down, then you're at more serious risk compared to if you're standing up. So that's an example of AI getting it wrong. But in terms of bias, I'll start with a couple of examples of gender bias. Researchers found in 2015 that ads can be discriminatory. So if you're female, if your Google profile shows you're female, you don't get shown as many ads for high paying jobs as if your profile shows you're male. And they didn't quite know why this was happening, but they speculated that maybe it was a vicious cycle in a way from the behavior of users and only men are shown and click on ads for high paying jobs and then the algorithm learns to show those ads just to men. Another example uh, which is fairly well known is uh, Amazon's 
AI hiring system, which went through resumes. And this was supposed to pick out good candidates, but it was based on previous practices where mostly men were hired. So basically women were marked down. Um, it favoured men, it was trained to favour men over women. For me, the best use of AI in healthcare is to provide insights and clinical decision support tailored to an individual patient. Um, and if you do that manually as a clinician, if you took wade through the notes and um, identify every single possible um, factor that would be relevant for such insights and decisions, that would be really time consuming, if not impossible. Um, so for me, AI provides um, that that gift of time, as it were, it releases time to the clinician um, <clears throat> to really focus on having those personalised conversations about what this means for that individual so you can have shared decision making. Um, and so, you know, AI or any form of digital health used well should make healthcare feel more human, um, more personalised, um, rather than, you know, the stereotype of digital health makes things cold and sterile. Now, in medicine, this is particularly important because medical data collection, if we look at historic trials and um, all sorts of research that's happened in the past, it's generally been biased towards certain groups of people. So typically minority ethnic groups or women are often underrepresented. Um, so if we use this sort of data to power our AI models, it's not quite garbage in, garbage out for everyone, but more like garbage out if you're not well represented in the training set, but quality out if you are. So there's a bias there. It's it's an unequal um, uh, experience of using AI depending on your personal demographics. Um, and so the real danger for me is this is different for other parts of the healthcare system. So for example, if we talk about drugs, medications, um, if a drug has only been tested in people aged 18 and over, um, then we often know when we look it up in the BNF or whatever formula we're using, it's clearly not licensed for children. So the clinician at the point of prescribing or the point of the clinical decision making goes, hey, OK, that drug isn't licensed. Maybe I should try and find something else. Um, but a lot of AI solutions don't always dive deep into uh, which groups are and aren't so well represented. So the disclaimers about, um, you know, what populations this this model can only be used in are sometimes not as clear and this is some this is not often a deliberate thing sometimes it's unawareness of just how many biases are kind of deep into the data um it's it's it, for example in a clinical trial it's very obvious we've selected this demographic but sometimes when you use large data sets it's not obvious how those large data sets um have been compiled and may have intrinsic biases following this theme of intrinsic biases i'd like to follow up with a question that was put forward by one of our listeners do the biases in artificial intelligence reflect current research politics and society uh, very much so that which is of course one of the main issues machine learning is based on data so if you have unrepresentative data, if you have biased data, uh, often historic data is both unrepresentative and biased, that means the results are going to be biased. Or the people who are preparing the data, deciding how to develop the system, they could be biased unconsciously or not, um, e.g. in selecting what characteristics or attributes they want to use or ignore when they're training the AI. So it is important that the data is fairly representative, that the algorithm and the model are checked and tested properly. And of course, on an ongoing basis, because bias can build up over time, uh, you might not notice it initially. And Dr. Thackera, what is your perspective on this as a GP? We see biases even day to day in our, our lives outside of AI. For example, up until 2021, in the UK, most labs adjusted the estimated glomerular filtration rate, so marker of kidney function, um, for ethnicity. 
Uh, and this was based on a study in the US that assumed that raised creatinine, which is a, a surrogate, if you like, of um, kidney function, essentially, for a lot of people, um, in people who self-identified as an African-American, they assumed that the higher levels in that population was due to higher muscle mass, and this was some sort of genetic factor. And, you know, if we leave aside even the concept that genetic differences between individuals are magnitudes more significant than anything across any perceived ethnic groups, there were no studies in the UK um, showing that individuals of black ethnicity had these high creatinine levels. And so the impact of this adjustment that the UK labs were using was to routinely overestimate the kidney function of people of um, black ethnicity. And that could have consequences, delayed diagnosis of kidney problems or delayed treatment. Um, and so these biases aren't unique to AI and the training sets. They're implicit and intrinsic, as it were, to a lot of the data that powers healthcare. Um, the two can't be completely divorced. And to delve more into the legal perspective, uh, Dr. Hong, can you tell us how do lawyers and how does the law deal with biases in AI? Um, well, I wanted to first say something about law and ethics, actually. They overlap, but they're not the same, especially as so social values change over time. So guidelines from the European U Union high-level expert group on AI uh, recommended, among other things, that machine learning models have to be both lawful and ethical. Personally, I think if you want to be ethical, you have to be lawful. But I know there's a lot of debate about the relationship between law and ethics. But obviously, I'm just focusing on the law. I'm a practitioner in data law at a law firm, and I also uh, lecture AI master's students on data protection and other relevant laws. But mainly, it's GDPR, equality law, and human rights law. There is an EU AI Act in the pipeline, but it's not, it's not there yet, so I won't discuss it. I'll just say it is somewhat controversial, even what is or is not AI isn't clear, um, but it wants to ban certain AI uses altogether and then introduce rules for other AI uses. Um, and another point I wanted to make about laws is that they do apply whether you develop the AI yourself or you engage a third party or you use a third party's AI services, you still have to think about the laws that might be relevant. So starting with human rights laws, I'd mention the SIRI algorithm, which was used by a Netherlands government department to predict benefits, fraud and the like. And a Dutch court actually ruled in 2020 that using this breached the Convention of Human Rights, specifically to the right to respect for privacy and family life, because it took into account all sorts of factors, um, many of which should be irrelevant, like nationality. Um, you know, just because you're not Dutch doesn't mean you're more likely to be fraudulent, for instance. So too many types of data, too much data, um, using machine learning to analyze it. People weren't actually told what was happening, that their data was going to be processed in this way or the results of the analysis. And it created risk reports uh, on people, which obviously can have significant uh, consequences for the individuals concerned. But there weren't enough mechanisms to safeguard them. And it was very opaque. It was pretty much impossible to check how it worked. So you can see that the themes here of you know, minimizing the data use, transparency for people, having proper safeguards in place, explainability, et cetera. Another big area of law which is relevant to AI and bias is data protection because of the potentially huge fines that can be imposed under the GDPR and the UK GDPR. And those who are controllers under GDPR 
have to have a recognized legal basis for processing personal data like consent um, and particularly for special category data like health data um, it's very limited as to what legal bases can be used to process them like consent and controllers must also comply with certain core principles and follow other rules so in relation to ai bias under data protection law the two main areas are fairness and transparency core principle and restrictions on what's called automated decision making or ADM. And delving more into this concept of fairness, Dr. Hon, you co-authored um, a Denton's blog in June of 2022, where you outlined key changes in the UK Data Protection Act and highlighted some key issues such as fairness um, that will be part of a much wider artificial intelligence government's white paper. For our listeners, can you explain the concept of fairness um, in a little bit more detail? Well, this white paper from the UK Office of AI is expected later this year, but it hasn't come out yet. So we'll have to see what it says when it is out. But the concept of fairness isn't really straightforward. Under GDPR, one of the ways that uh, processing of personal data is considered unfair is if it's against the reasonable expectations of the people whose data you're processing, for example. But the UK government's consultation on data protection reform, data a new direction that led up to the current bill, um, did point out that fairness is broad and context specific. There are many different concepts of fairness uh, and many def different definitions and different parameters. So that there's a lot of different views and expectations about what is fair, but they did acknowledge, of course, there's a close connection between fairness, bias, and discrimination. For example, are you talking about fair data use? Are you talking about fairness in procedure? Are you talking about fairness in outcome? There are different types of fairness. There are some examples of enforcement on the data protection front regarding fairness and transparency, not necessarily AI, but um, as you know, with a lot of students not being able to sit exams in person in 2020, a lot of students got graded based on algorithms, which may not necessarily AI, but certainly algorithms and, and models. And in Norway, the Data Protection Authority did investigate uh, an awarding model and grading system. And actually, they asked the uh, IB International Baccalaureate to reconsider the grades because they said it was unfair to base the grades on how, for example, other students at the same school had performed previously, which could lead to discrimination. So the grades were actually revised in consequence. So that's one data protection example regarding fairness and bias, not necessarily AI. So to summarize, it's difficult to say how fairness issues can be addressed, but obviously do comply with the laws on fairness, like GDPR, like equality laws, and try to meet societal standards on fairness too, whatever they may be, and they may change with time. So it's not an easy issue. And just to develop on that a, a little bit more, so you and you did speak about in this um, co-authored blog, how the government plans to, to introduce a new condition to enable the processing of, sen of sensitive data um, for the purpose of sort of, of monitoring and correcting for biases. Um, in AI systems. So in your sort of personal opinion, do you believe this is a positive move? Um, and do you think there are potential ramifications that we might be we might see across sectors, maybe the healthcare sector? 
I think it is a positive move. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the white paper isn't out yet. And the current draft of the UK uh, Data Protection Reform Bill left out this element. I don't know why, because actually the government's consultation response said it was going to be included, but it's been left out. Maybe uh, the bill will be expanded to include it. We don't know yet. But of course, it is a positive move because data like health data, data on ethnicity, criminal offence data, that's all considered sensitive under data protection law. And as I mentioned earlier, there are strict restrictions on their use. In areas like facial recognition, if you want to identify non-white people better, then you need to train the AI on non-white faces, so using images of people of colour. But because GDPR is so restrictive about the use of this special category data, like data on ethnicity, um, this is pretty difficult to do. So I think allowing processing um, and use of special category data for that specific purpose of correcting bias, of monitoring for bias and eliminating it um, would be important and very welcome in all sectors, not just healthcare. Developing on from this, integrating sensitive information such as ethnicity into artificial intelligence models will increase the accuracy of them. However, healthcare poses a much different problem in that there is a physical doctor that might have to translate this artificial intelligence into practicable medicine. And this is where concerns arise. And I'd like to bring back in Dr. Thackera. You co-authored a paper in 2021 investigating passive adherence of GPs to AI. For our listeners, can you describe this research and the main findings of it? The purpose of this paper was to explore the aptitude of GPs in appropriately trusting or not trusting the output of an AI-based decision support tool when assessing skin lesions. Um, and a kind of a secondary goal was to identify which individual characteristics can make GPs uh, more or less prone to uh, adhering to mistakes by the AI, erroneous uh, AI decisions. Um, so the background to all this was you know, um, GPs obviously look at a lot of skin lesions and uh, they have to identify which these people, or sorry, these lesions are, uh, would benefit from an urgent referral uh, for suspected skin cancer or any other sort of treatment. They have to make a, a decision, a treatment plan. Um, and what we got is we asked 50 GPs with a variety of experience and confidence levels in dermatology um, uh, to look at some images. And uh, these are simulated cases, of course, not real um, patients. Um, to decide what would they do? Would they refer to uh, urgent cancer pathways? Would they just um, refer but not urgently? Would they discharge a safety net or another management plan and so on? And for some of these images, we gave an AI insight. Uh, so the, the GP would look at the image and then get uh, a, like almost like a printout of what AI would, um, or how AI analyzed that lesion and the recommendation by AI. Um, and for other lesions, um, uh, there was no such AI insight. And we wanted to see how did different GPs respond to this AI, AI insight based on their individual characteristics, like how confident they were with um, dermatology. And what we found was when the AI insight was provided and correct, GPs generally agreed with this and felt more confident in their diagnosis. And, and this is the interesting thing though, when AI insight was provided and was incorrect, many GPs passively adhered to the incorrect insight um, so, for example, if um, a GP thought 
uh, if the AI said, you know, this is a benign lesion, um, whereas really it was, um, you know, a serious malignant lesion, a lot of GPs passively adhered to the uh, to the AI insight, even though when there was no AI insight in comparable cases, the GPs often got the got got it right, if you know what I mean. So they were kind of being influenced by AI when it was wrong. Um, and the minority who were not misled by, uh, um, you know, erroneous AI recommendations were generally those who had more self-reported confidence in dermatology and those who use a dermatoscope regularly. So dermatoscopes are um, tools that allow you to zoom in um, with, you know, magnify essentially uh, skin lesions and look at them in great detail. And it's kind of a marker. If a GP has essentially bothered to get a dermatoscope and use it regularly, it's a marker that they're probably quite interested in skin lesions um, and they probably have got some self-developed expertise and um, e interest in, in that area. So um, what we found is people who had that self-declared um, interest and objective markers of that interest, like using a dermatoscope, uh, followed their own, uh, were more confident to follow their own um, uh, beliefs rather than being uh, over-influenced by erroneous AI. I think the take-home message was that AI clinical decision-making may actually be most beneficial for those clinicians with greater domain expertise as they'll more confidently overrule AI error. Um, I mean, if the, the, the opposite is, uh, someone who lacks um, confidence may essentially be passively following uh, the AI recommendation, which is quite dangerous. Um, uh, and you lose the benefit of uh, AI as a clinical decision support tool, as opposed to a cl clinical decision um, maker, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. So this sounds like a two-pronged prob problem to me. So, so you've got this thing that AI systems may sort of misdiagnose based on biases and training data. Um, the GPs sort of can't correct for that if they don't have the correct domain knowledge, um, like you said, or maybe there are biases within their medical education that they have received. Mm -hmm. um, so so what do you think their medical education should be doing um, to sort of correct for some of this? Um, and what is Imperial maybe doing to, to lead this? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. I, I think there's a, uh, a deeper question behind um, treat, uh, helping identify AI biases. Um, biases are part of a systemic culture and students will encounter novel situations with biases throughout their, well, throughout their general life and also their medical working life. Uh, we can't train and teach for every single bias uh, situation that they'll experience. So we kind of want to look at the deeper systemic causes. So the two-pronged problem you've, ex you've explored there, right, to me seems like it's two bits of a deeper iceberg that are just peeking up over the surface of the water. And what we really want to do is dig deep into the iceberg um, and almost derive uh, a management plan for the offshoots that we see um, by understanding the systemic deep problem. So by exploring how they exist across all our society, we can raise an awareness for students to look for them in all areas. Um, so if we take an example, um, when we teach about digital health, of course, we do describe how training data um, may not always be representative. But we think about it more broadly about inclusion. So digital literacy, for example, might affect the ability of some people to provide data from wearables at home to perhaps detect falls um, or detect other kind of health parameters. And health literacy could affect people who um, uh, to, to may prevent people from um, understanding the insights from an AI powered app as to how to optimize their health and well-being. So low levels of health literacy and digital literacy um, can also uh, cause biases and um, uh, inequities in, in health experiences. Um, and we teach about this as part of a wider picture of the wider terms of health. So um, 
low levels of health literacy and digital literacy often uh, coexist with other markers of socioeconomic disadvantage. Um, I think one of the key things here, though, is teaching about these things is one thing, but doing is quite another. And at Imperial, we're pretty keen to um, to, to quite literally practice what we preach. So um, students do projects where they uh, collaborate with people from groups that may experience health disadvantage. So people who do not speak English as their first language or maybe LGBTQ plus groups um, to explore with those groups in the community how their local GP practice could best support um, that group's health and well-being. And then we also have experts by experience co-leading talks on, for example, drug addiction and the challenges of navigating the system. And then we we follow this co-production philosophy through. So students, uh, student shapers are currently co-producing a new digital curriculum, which includes exploring the dark side of uh, digital health and biases. So by taking this kind of broad approach to raising awareness and tackling biases in multiple areas, and then putting this into practice, what you know, what we're teaching, we're hoping this should contextualize any teaching around biases in AI training sets. So you know, students will not just say, oh look, AI training sets equals bias, um, but also remember, where these biases come from and also feel determined and capable of responding to them. So that concludes this episode of the Science Actually podcast, where we have delved into artificial intelligence and biases. In a related upcoming episode, you'll hear from Imperial's experts who will tell you about how they resolve this in practice. And finally, I'd like to thank Dr. Hahn and Dr. Thackera for joining us on this podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks so much for having me.